6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 1 through 2, verse 7. Well, welcome to our review of the book in the Bible called The Song of Songs. And um, whenever we go into the Word of God, we always want to do it with prayer, especially this one. As you'll quickly discover, it's one of the most controversial and confusing, and uh, a book in the Bible with more diverse opinions than any other book in the Bible. So we need to go at this with the Holy Spirit guiding us. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us together at this time. We pray, Father, that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives as we go forward, attempting to apprehend and understand this interesting, provocative book. So we ask your guidance, and we just pray that everything, that the meditations of my heart and the words of our mouth are acceptable and in your sight, as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our coming King, our Bridegroom indeed. Amen. Song of Songs. Before we get into the book itself, I think it'd be useful to set the stage a little bit with a predicament that we all are confronted with, and that's called the me generation. And uh, do you realize that fewer than half of adult Americans today regard the idea of sacrifice for others as a positive moral value? That's, an, that's exceptional. That the adult quest for freedom, independence, and choice in family relationships conflicts with a child's developmental needs for stability, constancy, harmony, and permanence in family life. There's an organized assault on our family values. Each divorce, they say, is a death of a small civilization. It inflicts wounds that never heal. Survey after survey demonstrates that Americans are less inclined than they were a generation ago to value sexual fidelity, lifelong marriage, and parenthood as worthwhile personal goals. Welfare dependency tends to be passed on from one generation to the next. Daughters of single parents are 53% more likely to marry as teenagers. 111% more likely to have children as teenagers. 164% more likely to have premarital uh, birth. 92% more likely to dissolve their own marriages. Our national policies contribute to family instability and breakup. It seems to be an agenda objective. Divorce is a public acknowledgement of failure. The problem since the 1960s all started with the Supreme Court outlawing mentioning God in our schools. 
Divorces used to be in the neighborhood of 10 out of 1,000. They suddenly, that growth in 1979 or so was 23 to 1,000, and it's even more than that. Hollywood celebrates divorce and unwed motherhood. It's a major agenda of our entertainment industry. Federal policy celebrates social and sexual variance. The post-war generation in the, it grew up with 80% in a family with two biological parents who were married to each other. Since 1980, less than 50% expect to spend their entire childhood in an intact family. An increasing number of children will experience family breakup two or even three times during their childhood. Scientific evidence demonstrates that children in disrupted families do worse than those in intact families as follows. They're six times more likely to be poor. 22% of one-parent families will experience poverty during childhood for seven years or more versus 2% of children in two-parent families. It's just a few little sampling here. I wanted to get this in front of us because marriages in our culture are in trouble, both inside as well as outside the church. The statistics within the body of Christ are no better. Some say even worse. So our subject, as we explore this book, is going to be focused on love, marriage, and intimacy, even as a broader concept. Intimacy is more than sex. It is spiritual and emotional as well. One of the secrets to success, because I assume that many that are gathered here in this study are here with an agenda to understand how to improve our marriages. Let me right up front tell you the number one thing that a husband and wife can do to improve their marriage, and that's to get on the same page. If you're married to someone who's accepted Christ and you haven't accepted Christ, the most powerful thing you can do for your marriage is to accept the lordship of our risen Savior. And uh, I just want that, because that's what Solomon, the author of this book, also told us in another book he wrote, that a threefold cord is not easily broken. And what he's referring to, the husband, wife, and God. If he's part of that threefold cord, you've got a chance. Without him, I really don't know how you'll make it because he's the key to the whole thing because he designed it and had an agenda. And that agenda goes far beyond our individual marriages. And we'll get to that near the end of the study. But we're going to focus right up front in a very special way. We're going to deal with the book here with only 117 verses and 470 Hebrew words, 47 of which appear only in this book. In other words, of the 10% of the Hebrew words that are only in this book. It's unique in that sense. That's interesting. And yet, having said all that, this book is the least studied and the most emotionally controversial of all the books in the Bible. It's, uh, there are many pastors that won't touch it. They'll find all kinds of reasons not to. This book, though, is inspired it was part of the scriptures that Jesus Christ put his imprimatur on when he was on this earth. Of the entire volume, he said, the scripture cannot be broken in John 10, verse 35. So it's part of the package that Christ endorsed. Let's not lose sight of that. And incidentally, it was the favorite book of D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, and the St. John of the Cross. 
Paul wrote in his second letter to his protege, Timothy, he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture, and this is part of the scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So Song of Songs is probably one of the most difficult and most mysterious in the entire Bible for some very emotionally charged reasons. And you'll see why as we go on. A cursory glance at the history, long history of interpretation of this book reveals a diversity of opinion unequaled in the study of any other book, including the book of Revelation. No discussion of personal lovemaking should miss an allusion to the ultimate opera written by Solomon himself. He was Israel's third king. He ruled from 971 to 931 BC. He was perhaps more gifted in literature and literary skills than any other king of Israel, for he wrote over 3,000 proverbs and he wrote over 1,005 songs. That's quite a record, 1,005 songs. And yet, this is the only song that Christ ordained to be part of the canon. Now, most evangelical scholars interpret the Song of Songs as a lyric poem that is both unity and logical progression. And we're going to explore that it has five love poems, or idols as they call them, five of those. And within those five, we'll discover there are 13 specific reflections. And that's what we're going to work our way through. The major sections of the Song of Songs deals with the courtship, a wedding, and a maturation of the marriage subsequent to the, the, the wedding. Those are the three main sections of the book. And it also con will conclude with a statement about the nature of love and an epilogue explaining how the love of the couple of the song began. So it's a, that's why we call them reflections. Each of the verses, uh, each of the subsets are called reflections because they're all looking back, reminiscing of this. Before we get into it, though, it'd be useful to, to understand a story that seems to lie behind the opera, okay? In the mountain district of Ephraim, King Solomon had a vineyard, and he led it out to an Ephraimite family as keepers. The husband and the father have apparently passed away, but there was a mother with at least two sons and two daughters. The older daughter, called Shulamite, is the Cinderella of the peace, if you will. Her brothers did not appreciate her, and they foisted the hard tasks upon her, denying her the privileges that a growing girl might have expected in a Jewish family. She says, quote, my mother's sons were angry with me. That phrase alone suggests that they were stepbrothers, maybe. Anyway, she says, mine own vineyard I have not kept. In other words, she not only got all the, the chores to do, but she didn't have an opportunity to look out for herself. It's really what that phrase is intended to convey. She was very sun-exposed, sunburned, you might say, but naturally very calmly. One day, she encounters a handsome stranger shepherd who views her as without blemish, key point. Friendship ripens to affection and finally love. He promises to return and make her his bride. Her brothers are skeptical. They regard her as deceived by the stranger. 
He is gone for a long time. She would dream of him in the darkness, but she trusted him. One day, a glorious cavalcade arrives, and the attendants announce, The king has sent for you. In obedience, of course, she responds. And when she looks into the face of the king, behold, the king was the shepherd who had won her heart. And she declares, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. She was chosen. This appears to be consistent with the biblical presentation, not just in the Song of Songs, but in the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. A story of a shepherd who came from heaven's highest glory down to this dark world that he might woo and win a bride for himself. He went away, but he said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And that's familiar because we encounter that in John chapter 14 at the Upper Room Discourse. So let's focus. We're going to adopt as a foundation a literal view of this book. There are those that feel this lyric poem deals only with biblical lovemaking. There's a number of books that focus on that subject alone. Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, which is a, a, a classic in its field, and David Hawking and other uh, very, very top-notch uh, scholars and um, ex ex expositors take that view. They treat it as simply a book about biblical lovemaking. The love relationship between a man and a woman, the courtship, the wedding night, and the subsequent sexual adjustments of the young couple are all fruitfully treated in this book. So we don't want to lose sight of that. The word Shulamite, by the way, which is a term used of her in the, in the uh, song, uh, is in Hebrew is merely the feminine uh, form of the masculine name Solomon. The story is of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon, if you will. Now indeed, of the many books on marriage that are available in both Christian and secular bookstores, none of them can possibly improve on the biblical teaching found in this opera, this Song of Songs. So let's get that right up front. This, that's why we are espousing and embracing and beginning with a foundation in the literal view of this, of this book. Here is romantic love for married couples that exceeds our greatest dreams and expectations. Period. Underline. Here is a manual on sex that beats all secular viewpoints on how a man and a woman should make love. Yes, it's going to get very explicit. There are passages here that you'll want to rate X, I believe, before we're through. So explicit are these aspects that because of its erotic content, the rabbis forbade the book to be read by anyone under the age of 30. We won't ask anyone that's under the age to leave, however. There's no way to escape the fact that this book is quite sensual. I just want you to be that's one reason why it's very uncomfortable for many, especially for pastors at a pulpit, to try to deal with some of these passages. Glickman summarized it this way, quote, Sensuous love with erotic overtones is God's intent for the marriage relationship. The distortion of that relationship is, has no doubt abased this dimension of life. But that does not justify placing such experience or scripture song about it into the inactive file for living. The secular world has drowned us with its encouragements toward illicit 
affairs, easy divorce, and the glories of promiscuity and the joys of adulterous relationships. And yet, while critical of Christian viewpoints, it has done nothing to improve our marriages or satisfy the longings of our hearts. The exploitation of sex and the disavowal of the marriage and the family itself in our culture has sown the wind. And so we now reap the whirlwind. This book is intended to improve uh, dying or empty or boring marriages, to increase your love for your spouse, and to illuminate true sexual and romantic understanding, period. If that was all, fair enough. But let me tell you, there's more than that, even, forthcoming. Because there's another aspect to this book that I'm going to try to defer as much as possible to, a, to a, one of the subsequent sessions. And that's the allegorical view. Another common view among both Jewish and Christian scholars and evangelicals is the, uh, the uh, allegorical view. Some see it as representing God's love for Israel, the nation. Israel indeed is, throughout the Bible, portrayed as the wife of yod in Hosea especially, and Ezekiel, and also passages all through Isaiah and Joel and so on. Others see it as a type, if I can use that term, of Christ's love for the church. H.A. Ironside, Hudson Taylor, and many others really saw it that way. Now we do know from the scripture, from Psalm 40 and Luke 24, that this all scripture speaks in some way of the glory and beauty of our Messiah. And so once we've gone through the book and seen the literal perspective of it, we'll re-examine that possibility and we'll discover that uh, Jesus comments on it in just that way. Now, the classical rabbinical view sees this as an allegory of Yorivavi and the nation of Israel. The early church saw it as an allegory of Christ and the church. In fact, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, recognized Christ as the bridegroom in John chapter 3. And Christ himself also claimed in Matthew 9.15, being the bridegroom, if you will. Paul goes even further in Ephesians 5, and we'll deal with that in one of our subsequent sessions. Also, John, on the Isle of Patmos, included these idioms in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, 21, and 22. The bridegroom and the bride, speaking of Christ in his church. So we won't be far afield when we go into that, but I want to do that after we've really seen what the book says directly and not minimize its practical value in our relationships. So it has two major parts. What I'll call part one, the first section, is on courtship and marriage. The second part will be the sexual adjustments in marriage subsequent to the wedding. Now, they are organized, and by the way, in, uh, it, it, the first idol, an idol is simply a, a literary way of speaking to a love poem, a love poem or musical work that's descriptive of pastoral or rustic life. That's a term commonly used uh, in, the, in, the, in the literature. So we're going to discover there are five idols or love poems that constitute this book. Each one of these love poems consists of several reflections, if you will. The first idol, which, de which deals with it, uh, uh, on the wedding day, there's a reflection here, and that will have three, re that'll have three reflections in it from, chapter, from the second verse of the book uh, through to the uh, middle of uh, chapter 2. And the, there are three reflections in the first idol. The second idol, which deals with the courtship, there are several more. 
Then there is the uh, marital union, chapter six through uh, reflection six through seven, and that and then we have uh, the fourth idol will have sexual problems after the wedding. A couple of reflections there, with advice as to how to deal with it, obviously. And the fifth idol, the return to Galilee, and uh, that's that. There are four uh, reflections that make up the fifth idol, and that make that completes the book, if you will. And uh, but there's something interesting here in the third idol, the marital union. We actually there will uh, touch upon the consummation of the marriage. And uh, what's interesting about that peak? That's the, in a certain sense, emotionally, for certainly, it's the peak of the whole program, as it should be. We'll notice something interesting that that consummation, those verses, the two verses that are there, are are preceded with 111 lines and followed with 111 lines. And in fact, it's right in the middle of the book. And I mention that not because it's that big of a deal, except to cause us to realize that this is designed. One of the discoveries you need to make on your own of the, of the Bible itself is that every detail in the Bible is deliberate. It's designed deliberately. Every number, every place name, even the structures that lurk underneath the text we discover are evidence deliberate design. And the reason that's so important, it'll, it, it, it will show you that this whole tapestry ties together. Every thread is critical. And they all tie together. And once you discover that for yourself, it elevates the role of this collection of 66 books we call the Bible in our lives. Uh, yes, you can. You, so you can't prove the Bible. Yes, you can by discovering its integrity. And that integrity will reveal a person. And that person, once you realize who he is, authenticates the whole thing himself. So courtship and marriage, that's the first part of the book that goes from the beginning to uh, the first verse of chapter 5. The first idol will, is the wedding day reflections, and there are going to be three of them. The first reflection is preparing for the wedding feast. At then the next one, at the wedding feast and in the bridal chamber. I don't want you to be confused. These are reflections. And uh, they're looking back. Then we're going to, the other, subsequent reflections will amplify those as we go. So the first verse gives you the title of the book. Many, many books, many commentaries call it the Song of Solomon. That's very popular. And uh, that's the way they expect to see it. But the actual title is not the Song of Solomon. It gives you the title in the first verse. It's the Song of Songs, and uh, which is Solomon's. Now, the repetition of the noun in the genitive is a way of expressing the superlative. It is the Song of Songs, just as the Holy of Holies is the holiest of the holies, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Those are ways of expressing a superlative. Song of Songs is what this is uh, called. It's, it's declaring itself to be the song of songs, and it's an opera, and we should recognize that we're victims of not only the translation, but also of, the, of, of musical idioms that are foreign to our ears, so it's going to take some adjustment as we go here. Now, Solomon is quite a character. As I say, he was the third king. He ruled from 971 to 931, and probably more gifted with literary skill than any of the other kings, because he wrote 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs. And so it's appropriate that a subject as wonderful as romantic love is described in sublime language by a competent human author, writing, of course, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
We need to remember that because Jesus authenticated that. And of course, of the thousand so- more than a thousand songs, this is the only song that God ordained to be part of the Holy Scriptures. And his name is mentioned in six other verses. You know, 1 Kings 10 tells us about Solomon. Let's learn a few things about our author here. He exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, we're told, in 1 Kings 10. He controlled the caravan trade and gold and spices, and his merchant fleet brought back sandalwood, precious stones, gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. He was a very sharp businessman, a sharp merchant. And uh, he imported horses from Syria and chariots from Egypt, a shrewd trader, uh, to the kings of the Hittites and Aram, while building his own force of 12,000 horses. That's a bunch and 1,400 chariots. The choiceness of his horses will be used as a standard in some of our discussion. We'll get into that as we go here. He also imported wives, uh-oh, from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Phoenicia, and from the Hittites. His harem included 700 wives. Can you imagine that? And 300 concubines. His building, his building exploits included the temple, of course, and his elaborate palace complex. You don't hear much about that, but that's important which included a separate dwelling for the daughter of Pharaoh, his first politically consequential of his wives. And you say, it's kind of a strange guy to be giving us a lesson on marriage because he went downhill. He started off great with wisdom and as a great leader, but his propensity for women is one of the things that Bathsheba started to caution him about in Proverbs 31. And uh, uh, that was his downfall because he did not finish well. And uh, that doesn't negate the understanding, the experience he had in his prime up front. His throne was of ivory overlaid with gold. No one valued silver as much in the days of Solomon. The law of the king, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 17, instructs the king not to multiply horses, wives, silver, or gold. I'm always amazed at the order. Apparently, multiplying horses was worse than multiplying wives, but whatever. I wouldn't make too much of that, but I think that's amusing. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.